Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News, published through the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. Now, perhaps you're asking yourself, who is Walter Bradley? Well, you're in for a great time today as our host, Robert J. Marks, chats with William Dembski about the life and legacy of Walter Bradley and why they were inspired to write Bradley's biography titled For a Greater Purpose. Enjoy. Greetings. We are with the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. MindMatters.ai is a website which is sponsored by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. A lot of people know about Mind Matters. A lot of people know about the Walter Bradley Center, but not about Walter Bradley per se. Well, there's a new biography, and we recommend it to you. It's a biography of Walter Bradley, written by William A. Dembski and me. And its title is, For a Greater Purpose, The Life and Legacy of Walter Bradley. And to talk about uh, Walter Bradley and some of the contents in the book, we have today with us William A. Dembski, who who needs no introduction, do you, Bill? <laughs> I don't know. I, I like an introduction now and again. But, <laughs> you, you, uh, you like an introduction. But, uh, but I guess it's even better not to need one. <laughs> I guess so. Well, I think that, uh, that Bill is, at least in the area of intelligent design, a, a type of celebrity. He was one of the founders of intelligent design, did a lot of work in the mathematics and the probability of intelligent design. He published a book with Cambridge, is that right? That's right. Uh, on, what was the title of the book? The Design Inference. The Design Inference, which is which is still in print. You're looking to reprint that maybe, is that I right? actually got the rights back from Cambridge. I asked them for it and they gave it to me, so I'm planning a second edition. So you're going to add to it, right? So we're going to see uh, brand new be, stuff on it. It's going to be very radically uh, rewritten, although I mean, I think the, the core ideas will still be there. Okay. So I met, uh, when I came to Baylor University, I met uh, William Dembski and we, uh, we resonated. We just had a lot, <laughs> in, lot in common in terms of probability and genetic algorithms and evolutionary computing. And we've done quite a lot together. We've published some really good archival journal papers. We put together a book, Introduction to Evolutionary Informatics, which is available now and is a really great book. The third author of that is Winston Ewart, and that is still available, and that has to do with the mathematics of evolution, and it builds on Bill's foundational work. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Walter Bradley. Now, what's interesting is that uh, we wrote a book about the biography. Again, the name of the book is For a Greater Purpose, The Life and Legacy of Walter Bradley. We're going to put a link to that in the uh, podcast notes. And just um, just my introduction before I begin to query Bill, I, I tell the story of a retiring professor in my department whose office was cleaned up. They took his books, they took his papers, they put them outside, and just to make sure that the night person took away the box of papers and stuff, somebody wrote very boldly trash on it, and they put it on on top of the box. And I thought, what a terrible metaphor for the life of a person, a career of a professor. Now, the person I'm talking about had much more than in his life than these books and these papers. But if you think about it, what does your life stand for? What does your, what, what does your life mean? Uh, what have you accomplished in your life? And the reason I think that we wrote the book on Walter Bradley is that Walter Bradley's life exemplifies what one can do 
If one wants to achieve great things in academia, in ministry, in apologetics, and in other areas. So we're excited about the book, and you are going to find out so very much about Walter Bradley in the book. It turns out that today's heroes are primarily people like celebrities, musicians, politicians. We very rarely take a person of character and a a person of uh, high accomplishment and hold them up as heroes. Well, I think both Bill and I can agree that Walter Bradley is indeed our hero, and we're going to find out today why he is our hero with all of the, um, all of the incredible stuff that he has done, and these, these uh, things are covered in the book. The book, again, I, I think the politicians say in order to get across the point, you have to mention it third three times, so this is the third time that I'll mention it, for a greater purpose, the life and legacy of Walter Bradley. The irony about Walter's life is that you cannot be like Walter Bradley by trying to be like Walter Bradley. Rather, you are like Walter Bradley if you spend your life, as the book says, for a greater purpose, not looking at your accomplishments, not looking at things that you would like to do to build up your legacy, but to do do things that uh, should be done for the purpose of doing them right. So, Bill, we met, Bill Nemsky, Walter Bradley, and I met at Baylor University, and you were somewhat instrumental in getting Walter Bradley to uh, to Baylor, in, in a sense. You, you gave some <laughs> input into the provost at the time. Yeah, I was, uh, at least for a time in my tenure at Baylor, I, uh, or stay at Baylor, I should say, I was never even on a tenure track, but... Um, I had some uh, connections and influence with uh, people that were uh, doing hiring. Uh, they were this was there was this big vision at Baylor to turn Baylor uh, into a full-fledged research university, but that was also faithful to its Christian commitments. And so they were looking for uh, faculty that were both excellent in their research and also committed Christians. And so uh, Walter's name was one that was floated, and I was asked to make some initial inquiries with Walter, whether he might be interested in coming to Baylor. I mean, after that, it quickly shifted over to the provost's office, and uh, it seemed that they were just very excited at the prospect of bringing Walter on, and uh, they did indeed. I think it was around 2002, and then with Walter here, that led uh, to him recruiting you. So you had this. That's uh, right. The dominoes were falling, and, and then and I was you the second I... domino. Yeah, Walter Bradley recruited me to come to Baylor. You know, the president at the time, Robert Sloan, writes a testimonial in the biography of Walter Bradley. And this is what Robert Sloan, the president of Baylor University, currently the president of Houston Baptist University, writes about Walter Bradley when he came to Baylor University. And this is very typical of the accolades that we get about Bradley. It says, Walter Bradley is one of the most remarkable Christian scholars I've ever known. That's saying a lot because Walter Bradley is one of a number of different faculty, but for Robert Sloan to say he is one of the most remarkable Christian scholars I've ever known is saying a lot. He said, um, All of us, as his colleagues, were encouraged by his enormous capacity to integrate historic Christian faith with cutting-edge scientific thinking. And so that was Walter Bradley's accolades from Robert Sloan, who was the president of Baylor. Now, we have another one here. Let me see if I can find it. This is from the uh, previous provost at Baylor University. That was David Jeffrey. And um, I don't remember what he said, but David Jeffrey was the one that hired me with the approval of 
Robert Sloan. So, yeah, the, the, the accolades are really, really high for Walter Bradley. There are just so many endorsements and uh, paragraphs written at the end of the book about him. I, I was just reading it the other night uh, when I saw the passage from David Lyle Jeffrey. So it's it's there, you know, it's just probably hard to find. Yeah, so and, much. Uh, th- yeah, because there's so many things at the end. Yeah. Let me read some of the other accolades. And these for, these are from kind of celebrities in the philosophy and apologetics community. We have people like um, William Lane Craig saying, Walter Bradley is one of the most extraordinary men I have ever known. I am in awe of him. That's a comment again from William Lane Craig. We have Douglas Axe, who those of you that are familiar with the Discovery Institute know about. Douglas Axe said, luminaries like Walter Bradley paved the way for me to dedicate my career to advanced design thinking in biology. We have um, a number of other ones. Let's see. We have uh, Brian Thomas, who is a professor here in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Baylor University. He says, Walter was instrumental in helping me understand that my gifts and talents as an engineer could be used to serve the poor and marginalized. Hopefully we can get to this, what Professor Thomas was talking about. Walter was one of the founders of the idea of appropriate technology. The idea is that in developing countries, you do not need a new supercomputer. You need technology which is going to help the country where it's at. And Walter Bradley was a pioneer in this. One of the things he did is noticed around the world that coconuts were a waste product. In fact, coconut hulls used to accumulate on the grounds of these developing countries, and they used to fill up with water. And just like abandoned tires, mosquitoes would lay their eggs in there. It would be a, it would be a great farm for mosquitoes uh, coming out. So the question is, is how could coconuts be used in order to, in a free market sort of situation, to uh, to do some incredible things? So Walter was the pioneer of that, and his idea was to go into these different countries and not help the people, but rather help the people help themselves. The idea was to set up a company which nationals could take over, they could run and use their local natural resources in order to perpetuate the business, and then Walter would step away and the business would continue. So this is what Professor Brian Thomas in our department is still doing. He goes to places such as Haiti. He used to go to uh, Africa, still does, Central America, and help the poor and marginalized. Uh, One of the things he did, for example, which is really cool, and this was under the sponsorship of the Bradley Center, he went to Haiti, and one of the fascinating things is that everybody in the world today has a cell phone, no matter where you go. But the problem is they have problems with Wi-Fi, with reception, but more importantly, they have problems with recharging their cell phones. So he ran around and started these little micro-businesses where he put out solar panels and uh, nationals would run little businesses where people could take their cell phones and get them recharged for a small fee. And so he had these little micro-businesses all around. This is this is a classic example of so-called um, appropriate technology. But this is the tip of the iceberg. Walter did uh, a number of other things. One of the other things he did was the co-author on just a classic book, The Mystery of Life's Origin. Bill, I wonder if you could comment on The Mystery of Life's Origin and maybe the impact that uh, Walter's book had on you. Sure. Well, uh, you know, in the mid-'80s when that came out, uh, the— Work, the books, popular books that were critical of evolutionary theory and origin of life uh, that were, you know, naturalistics origin of life accounts, were was largely the young earth creationist literature. And there were some 
good, valid insights there, but it was also always combined with a, a young earth, six 24-hour-day creation approach. Uh, so it's, there was always this sense of conflation of science and religion. And then in the end, people on the atheistic side could always say, well, it's really just a science versus religion controversy. And what this book did was it really put the whole question of the origin of life as a science versus science controversy and showed that all these naturalistic scenarios for explaining how life could have arisen by purely materialistic means uh, couldn't work. You know, that there is an information problem and an entropy problem that was uh, insuperable for these materialistic scenarios. And uh, the thing is, the book was published by Philosophical Library. This was a, a publisher that had published eight Nobel laureates. It was respectable. Uh, it was finally getting out of the, the Christian publishing ghetto and getting this material out in front of uh, the mainstream audience. And I don't mean to be unkind and say Christian publishing ghetto, but there's, there's a sense in which uh, credibility is just so hard won, and it's it 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 was this is this is what was really needed to get that book, uh, get it the eyeballs that it needed from the people of uh, who who understood what the debate was and and could really engage in it. So it was it was groundbreaking. It came out in the I think it was 1984 85. Uh, it in an appendix it raised the the question of well if if naturalistic or materialistic origin scenarios don't work, then what could? And it raised the possibility of intelligent design. And, you know, the, the thing is with the origin of life, if you don't have a naturalistic origin of life, then you really don't have a naturalistic theory of evolution because evolution, biological evolution, is downstream from an origin of life. So if you've got a gaping hole at the start, you know, everything that follows isn't going to work either. So it was a, it was a huge event. Uh, I mean, I give Walter credit, John Buell, who was with the foundation, or actually I think it was Probe Ministries at the time that got behind it, uh, Charlie Thaxton, Roger Olson. And it was just wonderful to see 35 years later this uh, new edition. And it's not just a new edition. It's not like it's just been lightly touched up. I mean, you have all these contributions by luminaries in the field of origin of life coming at it from various perspectives and disciplines and uh, really bringing it up to date. So here you have a 35th anniversary edition, but that really does bring the discussion up to date. And Nothing has really changed except that the problems have gotten worse for the materialists. The information problem is is worse for them. So the 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 case that Walter Bradley and his colleagues made back 35 years ago is, if anything, stronger now. Yes. And it it turns out that Walter's work has been celebrated by some pretty top flight. Scientists, we have Fritz Schaefer, for example, who gives a comment on Walter Bradley in the book. Fritz has been nominated for the Nobel Prize a few times in chemistry. And Marlon Scully, who is a PhD and a member of the National Academy of Sciences, this is what Scully wrote. Uh, Walter is an outstanding example and role model for young faculty. He had great, greatly improved engineering at both Texas A&M and Baylor. Walter is a great friend and colleague. He is indeed and, in fact, a distinguished professor and a Christian. Yeah, Walter, um, in writing, 
co-authoring the mystery of life's origin, uh, yeah, hit uh, hit a nerve with some people. Some people didn't like the fact that his last chapter had to do with possible theistic solutions to this. And that's one of the things that the authors of The Mystery of Life's Origin did. They didn't talk about theology or anything. They laid out the possibilities of, at the end of the book, after going through all the problems, they laid out all of the possibilities for The Mystery of Life's Origin. Could it have been uh, panspermia, where life was, was planted here? Uh, could it have been just spontaneous generation where chemicals uh, turned into life? That was basically what they debunked in the book. And there is also the possibility of a creative God. And so he presented a small section, or the authors presented a small section at the end of the book about that. And uh, I don't know, people didn't like that. I don't know why they don't like that explanation, Bill. What's the deal? <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a matter of presuppositions, right? If, it if is a want, matter of presuppositions. If you want the world to be a certain way, and if God is not supposed to be part of that, then uh, anything that would, would point to it uh, becomes a challenge. And, uh, you know, there People who just don't like it. Well, this brings up one of my favorite Walter Bradley stories. He was under a deposition for textbooks in Texas. And Walter is from Texas. Texas adopts textbooks and things such as biology. And there's always a question of the degree to which evolution should be presented. Should the controversy be also presented? And Walter was on deposition by the opposition. And it was an ACLU lawyer that came up and says, Dr. Bradley, they always say Dr. Bradley in a most condescending tone that they possibly can. He said, are you a Christian? Walter says, why, yes, I am. He says, Dr. Bradley, how, how, how is it then that you can be objective when looking at scientific issues if you're a Christian? And Walter shot back. He says, well, you know, I'm not really the one that is uh, not objective, you live in a little silo of materialism. You can't see outside of this silo. I live in a much larger uh, perspective, a much larger worldview. My question is not whether or not God did it. My question is, how did God do it? And I would submit to you, sir, that you are the one with a narrow perspective on life, and I have a much more broader perspective and can therefore be much more objective in, in my analysis than you and your ilk. And it shut up the ACLU lawyer, and he totally he changed the topic immediately, which I thought was just a, a genius response on Walter's side. <laughs> We had contributions from a lot of people. If you get the book and read it, you'll see indeed that this is the case. The foreword to the book is by the great Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, who knew Walter personally when they worked together at the Colorado School of Mines. And he tells a, a very interesting story in the beginning of the book about his relationship with Walter Bradley. And uh, we wrote, the um, for a greater purpose, the life and legacy of Walter Bradley, not necessarily to celebrate uh, the life of Walter Bradley, which we certainly want to do, but it is rather to lay out an example of what somebody in academia specifically and more general in life can do and still do their day jobs. What he was able to do in terms of, uh, in terms of ministry, in terms of outreach, in terms of appropriate technology, in terms of crisis pregnancy centers even is just, uh, is just astonishing. So that's what we want to talk about. I wanted to talk um, 
I wanted to talk first of all about when Walter Bradley was uh, a professor. And one of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to talk about his faith and, and science. He talked about engineering and he wanted to talk about his faith. And he and his, he and his wife, they said, you know, Walter, you have to go in and you have to say something. And Walter went in and said, I was going to say something about my faith. And then I chickened out. So they went home and they prayed some more. And then Walter went in the next day and said, okay, today I'm going to share my faith. And he went in and he chickened out. And you can see in the book that he did this for 22 times before he had the guts to actually make the presentation in class about his faith. It wasn't proselytizing. It was it was simply saying that I want you to know that, you know, I'm a Christian. And uh, as a result of that, I hope that you see its impact on the way that uh, it treats you. Then Walter went ultimately around to different universities, including where I was at with the University of Washington, sharing with faculty how to live out loud as a Christian. If you have followed academia today, you know that this idea of uh, Christianity being talked about on college campuses is not celebrated very much. One time, Walter was uh, sharing his faith, and the associate provost, uh, this was at Texas A&M University, sent out a memo to 2,500 faculty saying, you shall not talk about Christianity in the classroom. Wow, this was probably in response to Walter's doing this at Texas A&M. And this was a number of years ago, of course. I'm sure that this assistant provost has moved on. Walter immediately called them up. And this is one thing about Walter. He had a lot of guts. He called them up and says, look, you and I need to sit down and talk. And he went over and very politely said, okay, I think this might be a good idea not to be able to share your faith on uh, in the classroom. But, uh, you know, if you do this, uh, how are we going to keep quiet all of the people that dis Christianity and say that Christianity has nothing to do with science, that Christianity has nothing to do with the pursuit of knowledge. We have to get a, a rule where this doesn't happen either. How are we going to do that? And the assistant provost paused for a second. And he said, you know, I never really thought of it that way. And as a result, the assistant provost put out a memo and the memo basically retracted his previous criteria. And he said, just be, just be careful about, the, about talking about your faith to make sure that you don't alienate any of the students, which I think was probably a fair thing. But I thought that was a very uh, fascinating response that, um, that we had from Walter Bradley in terms of defending his ability and in the United States and our First Amendment rights to share faith, at least in public forums. Now, both Bill and I have had challenges at Baylor, and uh, one of those was Bill with the Polani Center, which was, I forget what years were that, that Bill? Uh, 1999 to 2000. Yeah, and uh, Walter was very supportive in your conflict with Baylor at that time. Tell, well, us, tell us what was going well, on Well, I mean, there. he was, I think, probably cheering from the sidelines because he was at A&M at, at that time. He didn't come on to Baylor faculty till 2002. And so he and I knew each other. We were very friendly. And so I think he was, you know, certainly supportive of the type of research that I did. But it was an incredibly contentious time in the history of the university. I mean, the faculty were very divided over where Robert Sloan was trying to take the school because I think there, there was a secular arm to the faculty that was really 
just hoping that Baylor would uh, would blend in with the other secular schools and that its Christian identity would be muted. And if anything, Robert Sloan wanted to bring that Christian identity to the forefront, but then also uh, improve the quality of the school by hiring research professors such as Walter and yourself. Uh, and so it was. Uh, so there was a real tug of war at the school, and I was caught something in the middle there because I, I was this poster child in some way for what the what the president was trying to do with the school. And the thing is, I wasn't particularly diplomatic or politically astute at the time. I think I've, uh, if there was a time machine for putting the present me back into the old <laughs> me, the Pilate Center might still be around. But uh, such was the case. So it's, um, but uh, yeah, Walter, I mean, he and I actually met, it was as far back as 1992 at a conference in Dallas. Uh, it was a conference about the the then recently uh, written book by Phil Johnson, Darwin on Trial. And so he showed up there. He's not one of the main participants, but you know, how do I want to put this? There were participants that were invited to do talks and write up their talks, basically to contribute to a volume. But he was more there as a commentator. But uh, I just remember seeing him there for the first time and thinking he was an impressive guy. And uh, and our paths just kept crossing over the years. And, you know, with his interest in intelligent design, especially at the level of cosmology, fine-tuning, seeing uh, the hand of design in the lar- in the structure of the universe, and then also with the origin of life, and then my work more focused on the mathematics of design detection, and then applying these ideas to evolutionary theory. Uh, you know, we, our paths kept crossing, and you know, it's always been cordial, and uh, you know, I mean, we've it's been a joy to to work with him. Yeah, that's great. You know, Baylor in in maintaining its Christian identity is not unique. In history, there's been a lot of universities that started with a Christian identity and kind of went by the wayside. Yeah. I'm thinking initially probably in England, um, Oxford and Cambridge. Well, but, uh, you know, just in the U.S., I mean, just virtually all the universities up until the late 1800s, I think Cornell was the first university that was really started on explicitly secular principles. Uh, But uh, virtually every school, if you look at their mottos, there's some sort of biblical theme there that, you know, they're going to be, you know, that's there and that that's expressing what they're trying to accomplish. But, uh, but that has been the consistent pattern in the 20th century. It was that schools that had a Christian identity, that identity kept being drowned out and just uh, it really didn't do much to um, distinguish the school or to the emphasis was much more, I think, uh, with blending in and not having that Christian identity play much of a role, if any. So what happened there? What happened at Princeton? What happened at Harvard? And uh, what are steps that somebody like Baylor can take in order to not go down that slippery path again? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, if each school I think has its own story. I mean, Harvard, there was a whole big Unitarian move in Massachusetts at the time. Uh, Princeton, I mean, there is certainly, you know, with the seminary and the the university, there's some illustrious theologians connected with it. But I think there's there's a it, there's a big cultural move, you know. I think towards a secular, naturalistic point of view in which God and Christianity seems less and less plausible. 
uh, less and less important. I mean, you think about, you know, who were the most important thinkers, you know, uh, the most respected intellectuals, you know, the public intellectuals of the age, 17th, 18th century America, you know, it would be the the preachers, the the theologians, you know. But then when you get into the 19th century, especially post-Darwin, uh, you know, post-Enlightenment, I think you you get uh, you get a much more secular secular view that doesn't really see Christianity as the the central truth that ties everything together. So, you know, the scientists, the the business people, the the titans of uh, industry, you know, these are the people that start getting the the most play. They're the ones that that have the respect. You know, these are the the, the people that you listen to. You know, and I, you know, I think we we see it even in you know our day. You know, it's uh, with with COVID nineteen. You know, science tells us to do this. You know, oh, yeah. and it's uh, and nothing against science, but I think often when you hear that science tells us this, uh, it's not that science itself is telling us this. It's that certain people with certain biases are using science to try to get you to do something. You know, exactly, which is which is, which is different. Yes, and and science has been again and again and again shown to be incorrect. There's a lot of stuff that does stick, but I'm thinking about George Washington, for example, dying because they bled him to death. I mean, that was <laughs> that was science at the time, and I'm thinking about uh, John West's great documentary. If you have time to watch it, I would recommend it highly. Called um, Human Zoos on YouTube. Watch it and how the science of eugenics. Did I say that right? Eugenics. 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 Okay, eugenics. How the science of eugenics was used to uh, for to, to substantiate racism in the early 20th century for, for quite a long time. And, you know, this was not something which is isolated among a bunch of bigots, but was a science which, science, quote unquote, that was accepted by places such as Harvard and Princeton and uh, the Smithsonian and other places. And you always have to ask yourself with the history of so-called science and what science says is what makes us sure that today science is telling us what is right. There is established science and then there's science which is, uh, which is spun for political reasons and such. And that's, that's something which probably needs to be avoided quite a bit. This is, uh, this is fascinating. One of the other things about Walter is he had a lot of guts. We talked about the idea when he went to the associate provost and he said, um, you know, uh, we have to make sure that the professors also stop dissing Christianity. They can't keep knocking Christianity if you want to play fair across the board. And this changed the provost's mind. The, yeah, he had such a disarming way. I mean, you know, so, but the thing is, it, it, it is just sticking the stiletto in, though. You know, it I mean, is. you know, so it's uh, he 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 was a master. He is a master, but yeah. he does it so so wonderfully. He he finally asked the provost. He said, "Where did this complaint come from?" And it turned out it came from two atheist professors. The provost finally admitted. So Walter, in true fashion of Walter Bradley, contacted the two professors that were atheists and said, let's, let's set up a time and meet. I'd like to talk to you about this. And he never got a response. Mm. They didn't do anything. Something else that was very bold that Walter did, Baylor does not allow atheist student groups, but there was nevertheless an atheist student group that met on the Baylor campus. Now, 
I don't know what your initial reaction would be, but mine would be something like, we have to get, we have to go in there, pound our fist, and we have to say these atheists cannot meet on the campus. Walter didn't do that. He decided that he would join the atheist group, sit down, have a chat with them. So he sat down and had a chat with them and went over some of their objections and then ultimately invited them over to his house. And this atheist group met with Walter for a number of different weeks, and uh, finally the, the the whole group disbanded because of what Walter did. You know, he 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 killed the atheist group with his with his love, with his uh, with his compassion. And I tell you, that's another example of taking a lot of guts to do things. And so we're talking again about Walter Bradley's book, and many of these stories and other stories are are covered in the book written by uh, authored by William Dembski and I called it for a greater purpose the life and legacy of walter bradley and we're going to put a a link to that and it's available on amazon.com and there's no doubt that uh, that you will enjoy it it's it's a wonderful wonderful biography and you will learn a lot you will learn a lot about what you can do in order to increase your ministry in order to increase your effect on people doing your day job Walter did all of this stuff while being a very successful researcher in mechanical engineering he attracted millions of dollars in external grants and was just a, a model of what a mechanical engineering professor should do. But in his spare time, he did this. Uh, he did these uh, incredible things. One of the things that Walter did, and this is outlined in the book also, is he had the guts to go to over, well, hundreds of campuses and make a presentation called Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God. That's a pretty provocative title. Have you ever heard him give that talk, Bill? I'm sure I have. You know, I've, uh, I, I don't remember that title exactly, but I, I know that that was the, I mean, that was the theme that he was always hammering. Yes. So, and he's given it here. He's given it in uh, dozens of foreign countries, and of course, with a title like that on a religious, uh, unfriendly campus, as he drew quite a crowd. And it was always, he always presented it, like you said, Bill, in this very disarming manner. And he was asked questions at the end, and he was always able to answer them calmly and convincingly. And often the entire meeting would leave, and there would always be students which came come up and wanted to talk more about it. So he had an incredible impact. That's one of the first places that I met Walter Bradley when I was at the University of Washington. Yeah. He came there and did that, uh, and did that sort of thing. So, yeah, one of the other things that Walter Bradley did in his uh, his presentation in his faith is he was the one that helped create and promote the arm of Campus Crusade, which is now referred to as crew, that ministered towards college professors. There were many college professors such as me that because of the penalties of coming out with your with your faith and talking about faith and science publicly, uh, you were afraid that you would get ridiculed. And he had been through this, and he went to different campuses and talked to different professors, including myself, and said, you need to come out of the closet. And it was very exhilarating for me to do that at the University of Washington, because one of the things that I found out is when I was very vocal about expressing my faith, that people gave me more respect. It was kind of like that, you know, if I was kind of ashamed of it, they would come and you know, kick me in the chins and, uh, you know, kind of bully me and things of that sort. So, yes, the book is For a Greater Purpose, The Life and Legacy of Walter Bradley. Uh, the book is is published by Erasmus Press, 
which is a imprint that Bill Dembski owns, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, tell us about Erasmus Press. You have you have another book coming out with Erasmus Press, which I I look forward to reading, and it has something to do with baseball. What's yep. the deal? Well, Erasmus Press is an imprint, so it's actually Influence Publishers is the publishing house, and it's uh, it's a small publisher, but we try to do interesting things. And the baseball book is titled Dalco. The Untold Story of Baseball's Fastest Pitcher. And it was about five years ago that um, I have an interest in the game. I have a son who plays, who's a pitcher and really good. Did also. you used to play baseball? I n- never really. I mean, I, I enjoy just hitting her around a sandlot, okay. but uh, never anything formal. But um, but your son Will is quite a pitcher. He's I understand, he's, right? he's he's good, you know. And uh, so he made it first team all state in high school. I think two years running, and uh, so he's he's real good. So anyway, I love the game, and um, you know. So you always wonder who who brought the hottest heat you know who had the most gas who could throw the ball the hardest and the overwhelming testimony as you start looking into it it was a fellow named Steve Dalkowski he was born uh, 1939 he died actually of COVID really but, uh, yeah and uh, but the thing is uh, he played for New Britain Connecticut in high school and then uh, within a week of his uh, 18th birthday in uh, 1957 all um, 16 teams at the time, there were eight in the National League, eight in the American League, were looking to recruit him, but he got he signed on with Baltimore. And I mean, the, the estimates are that he was hitting 110 miles an hour. I mean, people who caught him and who also caught Bob Feller, who, uh, who saw Nolan Ryan pitch, uh, the fastest recorded pitch uh, with any sort of modern technology is Nolan Ryan. And it was, I think, about 101 near the plate. And so when you extrapolate back, it's about 108. And so, but people who saw Ryan pitch, saw Koufax, saw uh, Bob Feller, they all say that Dalco was faster and even a lot faster. Um, so it's uh, it's a, it's just an interesting story. The thing that what makes it also interesting is that he had this phenomenal arm. He was he was not particularly big. He was 170 pounds, maybe five eleven. Uh, but uh, he he had this this once once in a century arm. And the the other thing though is he couldn't control it. I mean, there are times he could. He pitched in high school back-to-back no-hitters, and then he could walk as many as he struck out. So he could he could strike out 18 in a game, walk 18, and lose 8-3 to three or something like that. It reminds like me that. of, who was it? Uh, Charlie Sheen played Wild Thing, and yeah. uh, he was Wild Thing. And what was the movie? Do you remember? Uh, was that, was it Major League? or was Yeah, it, Major League, I believe yeah. it was, yes. You know, yeah. and then, I mean, there was Luke... Nuke Lelouch in Bull Durham is modeled on uh, Steve Dalkowski. I mean, Ron Shelton, uh, the the screenwriter for that, uh, played minor league ball and knew of Dalko. So Dalko was Dal- – Steve Dalkowski was the inspiration for the Nuke Lelouch character played by – uh, Tim Robbins. So uh, yeah, so it's 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 a fascinating story. The thing is, he never made it into the majors. In fact, after six years in the minors, he was just at the point in 1963. He was pitching against the Yankees. It was finally he was he was settling down, 
And uh, I think he had struck out Roger Maris, had struck out some major Yankee players wow. in a uh, in an exhibition, and he blew out his elbow. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> and then he, then he was, uh, I mean, blew it out is perhaps overstating it, but he was, it seemed that he was never quite the same. And then he was just at the point, I mean, probably the next week he would have made it into the majors. So it's, so there's, there's kind of a Greek tragedy aspect to it you know the icarus who flies too high and comes tumbling down you know the tantalus where the all the goodies are always just out of reach sisyphus is always almost getting up to that precipice and then it just comes tumbling down so uh it's a it's a fascinating story uh i don't think there's anything quite like it uh and it is i mean i'm convinced that you know and i think my co-authors are and uh and we we were tracking down people i mean who are getting close to 100 years old now who remembered him uh you know and i mean the overwhelming testimony is none faster the, the name of the book is dalco the untold story of baseball's fastest pitcher by bill dembski alex thomas and brian vikander and that's uh, that's one of the imprints of erasmus press yeah so the the other one that we're talking about, we went down a rabbit trail there yeah. a little bit, was uh, another imprint of of Erasmus Press for a greater purpose, the life and legacy of Walter Bradley. We haven't had time to talk about everything, but if you want to find out what Walter Bradley had to do with the movie Unplanned, if you've seen the movie Unplanned, which is a story of a crisis pregnancy center and a somebody that worked at Planned Parenthood and was disgusted when she finally saw an abortion happening and turned totally the other way. What does that have to do with Walter and his wife, Anne? And uh, another thing is, what has, uh, what has Walter done in order to make people know that there are Christian professors? One of Walter's laments was that he went through his entire undergraduate and graduate experience and never had one professor say that he was a Christian. So what has Walter done in order to address this? And these are in the book. We don't have time to cover everything in the book, but, we, but I recommend it highly, of course, because I'm a co-author. But it is, it is well written. We've, we've been getting a, a lot of great compliments about it. It has five stars on Amazon.com, and uh, we recommend it to you. So our guest has been William Dembski, who is the co-author with me of For a Greater Purpose, The Life and Legacy of Walter Bradley, the forward by J.P. Moreland available at amazon.com. We suggest that this is a is a great present and a great read. We should mention also that it's available in Kindle form and also in Audible. I'm listening to most all of my books today on Audible, and so this book is also available on audio. So that wraps it up for this time. Uh, so until we meet again for Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.